Oh, happy Father's Day. So we want to wish you all the fathers out there happy Father's Day. On your way out, for all of you fathers, there's a few choices out there, but uh, we got you guys a nice soda, all right? I was trying to get the king-size candy bars, but they don't carry them at Costco anymore because I wanted you to be the king for the day. And I just thought, well, fun size, you know, I just don't think that's the way to go. <laughs> and then I wanted to get the dad's root beer, wanted to get dad's, but they were already out. Uh, so at least you get three options, all right? There's the orange, there's Coke, and for those of you that, if you like the Sprite in you, there's a Sprite out there, all right? Uh, please do not fight over them, all right? No fighting, don't beat each other up. Uh, be kind, be generous, but there is one out there on your way out for all of you dads. We do want to wish you guys a happy Father's Day. Uh, and just uh, want to welcome all of you to our, our Sunday morning service. Uh, real quick, if any of the uh, Edgewood team, I know most of you are here, some of the kids are downstairs, but the Edgewood team, would you stand just for a minute? This is a missions team that's with us. They've been doing lots of work. Yes, give them a round of applause. Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. They're such a blessing. Um, I don't know if you noticed, there's a wall missing uh, out there, and, and we're, get, we're kind of getting uh, opening it up out there in the hallway. Work all around the church, not only that, but doing mission work, mission projects, helping a church out in Milford, helping a church in Burrell. Uh, they have some more work to do for a couple more days, so be praying for the Edgewood team. Uh, as uh, they are serving the Lord here in southern Utah. But we, we want to thank you guys. You guys are awesome. Uh, a couple other announcements. I don't know if you noticed. You can't notice by my hair, but it's pretty windy out there, right? And uh, this is the days where I'm thankful for my hairstyle. Um, the wind is picking up. So let me just make a quick announcement. We're going to get it out on the announce, on our remind and email. We're supposed to have the church picnic out at Three Peaks. Um, but whenever you see in the weather forecast, three of the young boys, three of the boys, the teenage uh, young men, uh, took a step of obedience, and they were baptized out there at the camp. Isn't that exciting? So God is good. God is working. And so we're just so excited what God's doing out at Henry's place. Uh, and uh, so continue to pray for them as they have another group of campers coming in this week. Uh, just pray that God continues to bless there. Brandon is going to be speaking for us, going to be preaching for us today. I'm going to ask Brandon to come, and I'd like to just pray with him. Uh, Pastor Brandon pastored here for about six years or so. Is that right? Six years? Around six years. He said it felt like 15. At least that's what he told me. But uh, no. 20. Thanks for that. 20 years, yeah. It felt like 20. So um, anyway, and he's now pastoring. Uh, the Edgewood, Edgewood Church out there in Kentucky, he can maybe mention that. But he's brought mission teams back each year, and uh, their church has just been a tremendous blessing uh, to our church here at Red Hills. And it's, it's uh, you know, cooperation Amen. and cooperating in the work of God, and it's such a blessing to have him here with us. Can I pray with you before Please you come me. and yep. preach the word? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing, Lord, and answer prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this missions team and just their labor of love, not only here at Red Hills, but here in southern Utah, helping out, Lord, um, even going out to Enterprise, Burrell, Milford, um, Henry's Place, uh, here at Red Hills. And we just thank you, Lord, for just their willingness to, to 
be involved in the kingdom work. Lord, we thank you that we have cooperation, that we work together, uh, that we're not competing with one another, but we are cooperating, Lord, to do your kingdom work. Lord, we pray that you would just bless the word this morning. I pray your blessing upon all of our fathers. Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for our heavenly father, Lord. We thank you for your tremendous love that you have for us. I'm thankful, Lord, that your word says that you are a father to the fatherless. And so, Lord, if there are some here today that Father's Day is a difficult day for them, Lord, and a struggle for them, Lord, I pray that they would know that there is a loving Heavenly Father that loves them and that He is a Father to the fatherless. May you bless each one here today as we receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Yeah, I was going to say, you might want to take that. I might get tempted during the sermon. That's yours. All right. We're not going to fight over it. You told me we couldn't. All right. Well, guys, it is a privilege to be here, and I'm so grateful to Joe and the pastors of Red Hills for allowing me this opportunity to open the word with you. Uh, I would ask you to take your Bible, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 15. Uh, It's Father's Day. You guys have heard that a couple of times today. Uh, And today's sermon title is Look at the Father. Uh, But dads, I apologize. This sermon is not about you. Um, Sorry about that. You inspired the sermon, but it's not about you. Uh, Instead, we're going to be looking at a passage that's fairly familiar to a lot of us. And as as you come to that, Luke chapter 15, it's all about lost things. Uh, But we're going to be looking particularly uh, at verses 11 through 32. But before that, I just want to tell you, Red Hills, you guys are a bad influence. If you look at my shirt, and you look at Shane's shirt, and you think about what today is, and you think about what y'all did a year ago, this morning, Richard's Sunday school class was phenomenal. But my phone kept buzzing, and finally I was like, what is going on? And I opened it, and there's a picture of 50 men wearing the exact same shirt that I am. So, well done, Red Hills, I guess. Uh, Your your influence is spreading. Uh, But anyway, so we are going to be looking at this passage here that is very familiar to a lot of us. Um, What do we normally call this? It's the parable of the prodigal son, right? Well, he gets all the attention. He gets all the attention. We look at the prodigal son and we think, oh, that's an incredible story of God's grace. Right? He wasted everything. He wasted the father's inheritance. He wasted his life, and yet God gives him grace. He comes and he finds reunion and restoration. And I understand why we call it the parable of the prodigal son, because that's a pretty cool story. And it's so encouraging to those of us who have felt like we have squandered what our heavenly father has given us, who feel like we failed and like there could never be redemption for us. And then we find out there is through Christ. But that's not what the parable is about. It's, not, it's about that, yes, but it should be called, as Tim Keller put it, he said that it should be called the parable of the two prodigal sons. Because if you look at Luke chapter 15, what he's doing is Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious people who aren't happy with the fact that he's extending God's grace to people that don't deserve it. And so the elder brother at the end of this story He's the one who kind of gets the the attention from Jesus. He's wanting to call the Pharisees out and say, you're just as lost 
as those who stray because you've misused the Father. He's merely an instrument for you to get what you want and think you deserve. So the parable of the two prodigal sons or the two lost sons, because chapter 15 is all about lost things being found and the rejoicing that takes place when those things are reunited with their owners, with their families, right? It's an incredible story. But here's the thing. There's another detail that can sometimes fly under the radar. I'm not saying it gets missed. I'm not saying it doesn't ever get touched on. But there's a, there's a part of this that, that sometimes gets overlooked. Um, when you're on a mission trip, you find out things about one another, things that sometimes shouldn't be shared with others. And I'm looking at you, Edgewood team. When we go back, you don't need to share everything you've learned. But one of the things that they know about me now, and if they, they should have already known this because I've said it from the pulpit, but they were probably asleep then. But one of the things I told them this week is I said, I hate weddings. And you could have seen jaws drop. And they're like, well, that's not very pastoral of you, right? You're a Christian. You're a pastor. You're supposed to love marriage. And I do. I do. I love marriage. Marriage is great. It is, it is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to his image bearers. And I would say the same thing if my wife wasn't in the room. All right? It is a gift. Marriage is a gift. Weddings are torture. I don't like weddings. All right. But there is something about a wedding that I do like. You know that moment where there's this pause and then the music starts and everybody stands and they turn and they look at the back door, right? When the bride's coming in, I like to look at the groom when everybody else is looking at the bride. Because in that moment, he forgets how much he hates weddings. <laughs> he forgets how much he hates this pastel tie they've put him in. He has eyes for one thing. And it's almost enough, not quite, but almost enough to make me rethink my view on weddings in that moment. When you look, when everybody else is looking one way, it's sometimes helpful to look back, look a different direction. So that's what we're going to do with this parable today. I want us, as we read through this, I don't want us to be thinking, am I the younger son? Am I the older son? Am I the prodigal who squandered everything, or am I the religious person who thinks he's earned everything? No, I want us to look at the Father. I want us to look at the Father, and I want us to consider together today who it is that's being talked about here. So if you've got your Bible, look at Luke chapter 15 with me. Beginning in verse 11. And he, that's Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, that's a long chunk of scripture. That's a long chunk of scripture. But did you track with that? Did you see the father as we walked through that? Do you see the response of this one let me ask you this. Who does the father stand for in this parable? Yeah, this is a picture of God, right? This is, this is showing us God. This is teaching us something about the nature of God himself. When we look at the father in this parable, we're meant to be looking at the father in heaven. We're meant to be seeing truths about the one who made us. We're meant to be seeing some incredible things. There's a lot that we could pick out here, but uh, for the sake of time, and those of you who know me know that that's an important consideration in this process, we're just going to look at three things. We're going to look at three things. First, we see that the Father prioritizes relationships over his reputation. The Father prioritizes relationships over his own reputation. Now, we see this right off the bat at the very beginning. This parable, when Jesus tells this parable, his audience, his original audience would have been shocked because of the affront that is the request that the younger son makes. Right? He says to him, Father, give me my inheritance. You don't get an inheritance while somebody's alive. When do you get an inheritance? When they're dead. He's looking at his father. You've heard this before. If you've been in church, you've been around this passage, you've heard this. Like he's, he's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have your money. You don't matter to me. Your money matters to me. In that culture, for a son to do that to a father would have been the most offensive thing possible. It would have shamed any father to even hear that. And if the community heard that a son had asked his father for his inheritance before the father is dead, that father would have been shamed because how could you raise a son who would dare do such a thing? But he doesn't just hear the request and think, oh no, what's the community going to think of me? 
He hears the request and he says, okay. Okay. He doesn't care what anybody says about him. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't care what word gets out about him in the community. What's most important to him is protecting the relationship that he has with his son. Now, this doesn't mean that we can just, you know, do this willy-nilly. It's a parable. It's a story. This is not saying that we should go to our father and say, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your money. And that the right thing for him to do would be to give us the money. But he is highlighting the fact that this father is more concerned with his relationship with his son than he is with his reputation in the community. We see it again when the son comes back, right? Look down there when the son comes back. He's got this whole speech planned out. He's got it all worked out, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just hire me on. I know you feed your servants well. What does the father do? He doesn't even give the, ch- the son a chance to give the speech. He doesn't even give him a chance to get in the house. He runs to meet the son again in the culture in that day, a very undignified thing to do. No man in a time of peace would be caught dead running especially to meet the guy who said, I wish you were dead. And yet right there in front of everybody, he runs out to meet the son. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He is concerned with his relationship with his son. But it's not just how he engages with the prodigal. What does he do when the elder brother comes in? And here's the celebration. The elder brother is coming in and he hears the music and there's this great big thing happening. And he's mad and he refuses to enter. What does the father do? He goes out and he meets a second son. He's the head of the household. He doesn't go to anybody. Dads, be honest. How many of you have your name on a recliner this afternoon? (laughs) How many of you have already prepped the kids? Like today, when I say I'm ready for that Fanta, (laughs) you bring it to me. Right? That's that day every day. In that generation, the father did not go out to meet anybody. You came to him. And if there was reconciliation that needed to take place, it was the elder brother's responsibility to go to the father with any complaints he had, to bring any concerns that he had to him, and yet the father is not willing to wait on that rebellious elder brother. He goes to him and he tries to make restoration. He's concerned about his relationship with the elder son, but he's also concerned about the relationship between these brothers. He wants to bring unity. He wants to bring them back together. The father in Luke 15, 11 through 32, prioritizes relationships. He prioritizes the connection that he has with these sons, the connection that they have with one another, He prioritizes it even above his own reputation. He doesn't care what anybody thinks of him, but he does care that those connections are made and maintained. That's an incredible truth about the father. Another thing that we see in here is that the father practices right stewardship and reckless generosity. He practices right stewardship and reckless generosity. Now, I need to explain those a little bit. So, I like alliteration. I like for things to start the same. And if you're a note taker, you'll notice that as you're writing these down. I didn't put them on the screen on purpose. But there's going to be a P in two R's and a P in two R's. All right. It was a little tough on this middle one to come up with it, okay? So just give me a pass, right? But what we see is what does the son realize? 
He's out there. He's squandered his inheritance. He's wasted everything that the father gave him. He's destroyed his relationship so far as he knows. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be counted your son. But what's the realization? He's hungry. He's feeding pigs. He can't eat what they're eating. Nobody's given him anything. And he remembers something. My dad always took care of his people. My dad always took care of his people. If you look at the Old Testament in particular, you see this time and time again, but you see it in the book of James. You see it in some of Jesus' teaching as well. God considers the way we treat those who work for us a key indicator of whether or not we are righteous, whether or not we are stewarding things well. You look at the Old Testament prophets all the time. They're saying to Israel, look, your injustice is such that the wages of those you've left unpaid are rising up before God as an affront. They're condemning you. This guy doesn't do that. The son's laboring. He's working for somebody, but that person's not paying him a living wage. He's not even making enough to eat. But he remembers, wait, my dad, he knows what, it's right, what righteous stewardship looks like. He knows what it is to take care of those who work for him. I can't be his son. I already told him I wish he was dead, but maybe I can go back and work for this guy who knows what it is to use his resources properly under the authority of God. But there's a different part of this, too. And it's a, it's, it's a tension. Now, how many of you guys have heard the Bible's full of contradictions? Just show of hands. Who, have, you, have you ever heard that? The Bible is full of contradictions. Y'all need to get out more. Or you need to wake up so you can raise your hand when I ask a question. <laughs> Either one. All right, you hear that all the time. The Bible's full of contradictions. This might look like a contradiction. Because on the one hand, this father has a, he's known as somebody who practices good stewardship, who takes care of his employees. But on the other hand, he starts giving away stuff that he doesn't own. Look at the first verse, or second verse there, verse 12. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. What's dad got left? Nothing. He gave it all away. He gave the younger son his portion of the inheritance, and he gave the older son his portion of the inheritance. What's dad got left after all that? Nothing. And what does he say to the elder brother when he goes out to reason with him? Right? Elder brother's mad. You never even gave me a goat. And dad kind of subtly is like, well, that's your goat. Everything I have, it's yours. I already gave it to you. Clear back at the beginning of the parable. How'd you forget so quickly? Right? It's all his. And yet the father recklessly gives that inheritance in giving this party. This is, this is, a, this is a tension. It's not a contradiction. The father is both the one who is righteous in how he uses what is his, but he's also somebody who is reckless in how he uses what belongs to somebody else. That's a tough one to wrap our heads around. Maybe that's why the elder brother was a little upset. And maybe that's why the father says we had to celebrate. We had to do this. This wasn't just a dad celebration. This was a we celebration. This wasn't just a me thing. This was a family thing. We are welcoming this prodigal home. He's a good steward. He's righteous in his handling of his finance, but he's also recklessly generous with what belongs to somebody else. 
Third thing that we see about the father is that he is pursuing restoration instead of pursuing being right. He pursues restoration instead of pursuing being right. Now you would think, oh, that sounds exactly like point one, and Brandon's just trying to pad the stats a little bit and get a third point in here. That's not the case. His reputation, his concern for relationship, and his reputation, that's out in the community. But the way he engages with his sons is he wants to see restoration. He doesn't care if they say, yeah, you're right. Now, this is a challenge for us. How often, how often do we, in our one-on-one relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, right, in, in our church family, how many times do we say, I'm right and they're wrong? Like every time, right? You don't willingly hold a position that you think is wrong, right? You, you, you never do that. You always are convinced this is the right thing and this is my way. And yet the father is right. The son should have never looked at him and said what he said. The elder brother should be willing to go in and be reconciled. But dad doesn't go to them and say, look, I could have told you this was going to happen. I've lived longer than you. I know more than you. Right? You should have known this from the beginning if you'd only listened to me. No, he doesn't go with that. He says, bring the celebration on. My son's back. He says, we need to celebrate. Your brother's back. He wants restoration. He doesn't care if anybody knows that he was right. What he cares is that those lives are brought back together. This would change your life if you thought first, how do I seek restoration instead of proving that I'm right? Every relationship you have would be radically altered if you decided today, I'm going to pursue restoration instead of pursuing dominance. Because that's really what it is. When we want to prove ourselves right, what we're pursuing is dominance. We want to prove control. We want to prove our ability. We want to prove our rightness. But the Father's not concerned. He wants to show God's righteousness. The kind of righteousness that restores rather than diminishes. The kind of righteousness that reconciles rather than increases division. Now, all that's about the Father. And we've been, that's what I told you, right? I said, we're going to come together today and we're going to look at the Father. But Jesus isn't just telling this, this parable so that we could look at the Father or so that we could learn from the elder brother or so we could learn about the younger brother. The purpose of everything that Jesus does, the reason why Jesus does everything that he does is what? To bring about the kingdom of God. When Jesus first shows up and starts preaching, what does he declare? The kingdom of God has come. When Jesus is getting ready to ascend to heaven, what does he tell his people? All authority has been given to me. I'm now the king. And so every aspect of Jesus' ministry is driving us to this reality. The kingdom of God is here. So we look at the Father, but it's not just for us to get a sense of who God is. It's for us to get a sense of who God is and then understand how we ought to respond to it. This information is great, especially on Father's Day. 
right? It's, it's wonderful to look at this dad in this parable and say, oh, what an encouragement. Now, usually mothers, we encourage them on Mother's Day and fathers, we beat them up on Father's Day. So I'm not going to say anything about that. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus wants to show us the Father. Well, the problem is we can read a parable, but none of us have ever seen the Father. None of us have ever seen God. But Jesus seems to think that in seeing God, we will be changed. We will learn something. We will understand something about the nature of the kingdom that he is bringing. Philip, one of the disciples, he was concerned about the same thing. Jesus says, look, you need to see the Father. And Philip's like, well, how can we see the Father? And Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip, have you been with me this long and you haven't grasped this yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We look at the Father, but ultimately what we need to be doing is we need to be looking at Jesus. Because Jesus shows us all this in his own life. Jesus prioritizes relationships over his reputation. What was the number one charge given against Jesus in his life? That guy eats with sinners. He's a friend to tax collectors. He's hanging out with the dregs of society. Does he know who it is that's touching him? Does he know who it is that he's eating with? Jesus didn't care about his own reputation. He didn't care what anybody thought about him. He was pursuing relationship. He was bringing people into the kingdom and by meeting them where they were. Now, here's the part we miss. We sometimes meet people where they are and then we stay there with them. That's not what Jesus does. He meets people where they are and then he lifts them up. He brings them into a new kind of life. But he does so at significant cost to his own reputation. Jesus practices right stewardship and reckless generosity, right? The, the, the number one thing that we're told all throughout the Bible, the chief end of man, as, a, as one old statement of faith has it, is that we would glorify God. Right stewardship is rightly living as God's image bearers. Right stewardship is living in such a way that people see us and they see him. That's right stewardship. Jesus did that, so much so that he could say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And guess what? He calls us to do the same thing. You go look at his sermons, you go look at Jesus' teaching, and how many times is he telling people, go, sin no more. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Change, be, do, all of those things he says. That's right stewardship. He's pointing us to the right way that our, our life is meant to be lived for the glory of God. Not for our own agenda, not for our own sake. Jesus says that. But then guess what? He turns around and he offers salvation to anybody. Whether we got our act together or not. Whether we're living righteously or not. He offers salvation to any. He offers it freely. He offers grace, dare I say, recklessly. He gives to us what we don't deserve. Takes for himself what he didn't deserve. That's, That's the good news of the gospel. It's incredible news. That you and I do not find our standing with God on the basis of what we do or don't do. 
We find our standing with God on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. For we are saved by grace through faith. And this not of works so that no one can boast. But what are we saved for? Not by. We're saved by faith. By faith. But what are we saved for? For good works that God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Do you see the tension between stewardship and reckless grace? Jesus shows us that way. Jesus also pursues restoration more than he pursues being right. It was not right that Jesus hung on the cross. It was not right. He didn't deserve it. It was not right that he died. It was not right that he was buried. The scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus never sinned. So how come he died? Because all of us have earned that coin. All of us deserve that wage. And Jesus, rather than being right, said, no, I'm going to pursue restoration. And in dying the death that they deserve, I will give them the life that I deserve. It's restoration, not right. This is the challenge of Luke 15. That we would see the very heart of God. That we would see the nature of God. That our eyes would be drawn away from our little lives. That our lives would be drawn away from our petty concerns. And that we would become more and more enamored with the sight of the Father. Who we can't see. So we've got to look at Jesus. Because Jesus shows us the Father. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says, little children, we don't know yet what we're going to be. But we know that when Christ appears, we'll be like him. For we shall see him as he is. In John's mind, I would argue in Jesus' mind. I would say in all of the Bible, the solution for us is to see him. And when we see him, we begin to change. When we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, we are transformed. And everything begins to change. My call to you this morning is not work harder. It's not do more. My call to you this morning is look at the Father by looking at Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us while we were sinners. Thank you that you did not just send him to save us. You sent him to change us. And it's in the looking at him that we are transformed. God, I pray that you would help us to be changed today. I pray that you would help us to rejoice today. I pray that we would worship with hearts full of the knowledge of your grace by looking at Jesus. Thank you for the mercy you offer. Thank you for the love you show. And thank you for this opportunity to consider it on this Father's Day. We pray in Jesus' name.